Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. One thing about hosting a radio show about animals is that we receive a ton of unsolicited samples of pet products of all sorts. We also get scores of books, but that's not what I want to talk about today. What we receive that leads to many questions around here are about dog treats and chewable dog toys. And we're always trying to figure out what's safe and what's appropriate for our dogs. Anyone who has dogs has to go through this process of deciding what's a good toy or treat for them, whether the item is safe or a choking hazard or nutritious or potentially toxic. So dog people, let's find out what we need to know about the safety of treats and toys. And here with us now is Dr. Doug Coons, Medical Director, Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Welcome to the program, Dr. Coons. Oh, thanks, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Doug, let's start with toys, and particularly the sorts of toys that a dog might chew on. What are the ideal toys, and what are the things that, in your view, are risky? The most important thing is that the toy is sized appropriately for the dog. You don't want to go and buy a three-foot-long rawhide bone for your chihuahua. And it shouldn't be something that can be destroyed Uh, rapidly and ingested. So lots of times some of the softer toys uh, that have squeakers inside can sometimes be a little dangerous because some dogs will just obsessively go after those until they tear that squeaker out and uh, we once in a while have to take a squeaker out of a dog and that's that's not fun for your veterinarian or fun for the dog. Again, they should be pretty much indestructible toys. Doug, how about the very hard plastic bones that are sometimes advertised for strong chewers, like, for example, Nyla bone? Some of them are so hard, I can't imagine them being safe for teeth. Exactly, Lori. There is a specialty in veterinary medicine for, for veterinary dentists, and they tell me that you shouldn't give your dog anything that you can't dent with your thumbnail. And uh, particularly the Nyla bones and some of the other really hard bones, we we tend to see slab fractures of the teeth, particularly some of the the larger teeth on the on the upper uh, arcade of teeth uh, will develop a slab fracture, and then the tooth has to be extracted, or they they require a, a root canal. So you know if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, you probably shouldn't give it to your dog. Good advice. How about the toys that are made of or have heavy-duty pieces of rope? One of my dogs loves them, but I have to tell you, Doug, we see bits of rope in her stool, and besides being a little gross, it always worries us a little bit. You know, those probably are pretty safe, and if there are little bits of rope that uh, get ingested, uh, they're probably just going to pass through without uh, causing any issues in my 40 years of practice. uh, I don't think I've ever seen an issue with that kind of a toy. And by the way, since we're talking about rope, what is your opinion about dogs playing tug-of-war? Is is it okay for their teeth? You know, it it actually is is okay for their teeth. We, We seldom see any harm coming from that kind of activity. 
you know, dogs sometimes will carry things in their mouth that are a little bit abrasive, and that can cause wear on the teeth, particularly tennis balls. Uh, dogs that are kind of obsessed with a tennis ball will see the canine, the long teeth, worn down to expose the, the nerves, and that, that's not a good thing. So I, I don't like things that are habitually carried in the mouth that are abrasive. How about the rubber toys, like the classic Kong toys? I love Kongs for two reasons. Number one, they're they're pretty indestructible. They have give to them, so they're they're not likely to fracture a tooth. But even more importantly, those kinds of toys can entertain a dog because you can pack them with their food. Uh, some behaviorists uh, recommend uh, putting peanut butter in them as long as it doesn't have xylitol. Uh, and then freezing them, and then the dogs will occupy themselves with those for hours, particularly dogs that that uh, tend to be larger breed dogs that uh, have some anxiety and just being cooped up all the time. This gives them a job. What a great tip. Doug, some toys have thick fabric as one of their main components. What do you think about those? You know, as long as it's not destroyed quickly, I don't have a problem with the ones that are fabric. They're, again, they're soft. They're not going to cause any harm to the teeth. And generally, if they get pieces of it off, uh, it's going to pass. But the big thing is, if the toy starts to get destroyed, throw it away. Don't risk the, you know, the dog ingesting major parts of it that would then require removal. Doug, earlier you commented about the squeaky toys. You know, these toys have a stuffing or filling to them, and they also have this squeaking device, which we often see as two parts. One is a softer, hollow, plastic, compressible balloon-type piece, and the other is a small, hard, plastic cylinder that makes the sound when the air gets pushed through it. I would have to say our dogs would ingest all of this if we let them. Again, the key to the squeaky toys is does the dog just enjoy playing with it or is the dog destroying it? And if the dog's destroying it, it's not a good choice. I've had dogs that have had squeaky toys, and they they love to squeak them and carry them around, but they haven't destroyed them. But if they're destroying them, then there's potential for ingestion. Right. So, Doug, what are your recommendations for dogs who seem to be able to destroy and tear apart any kind of toy? Well, I I absolutely have angst over that. I don't like to see a toy that's easily destroyed or even that's difficult to destroy, but once the dog starts to destroy it, there's the potential for ingestion. And it just better to err in the realm of of safety and and not let the dog continue to destroy a toy once that process has begun. Throw it away and buy a new toy. Okay, so Doug, let's move on to treats and animal bones. Overall, what are your likes and dislikes in terms of dog safety? Well, again, I'll refer back to the the statement I made about the toys uh, that my dental specialists uh, say, and that is, if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, don't give it to your dog. And so, you know, giving a, a bone carries some risk with it. And again, we tend to see these slab fractures of the upper fourth premolar, which is the big tooth, chewing tooth uh, on on either side uh, in the upper 
upper teeth. And so we want to stay away from things that are really hard like that. As much as dogs love those, you know, I've seen a little round bone that you get out of a, a round steak. Uh, dogs will chew the marrow out of it and then chew them, and sometimes that gets caught around the, the upper canine teeth, and, and then you have a trip to the vet trying to extract a bone from the mouth. So I'm, I'm not really big on those. I'm not really big on pig's ears and bully sticks because those, uh, you know, are both animal parts and somebody, you know, found out that something that they were throwing away could be turned into income. And in the literature, there are reports of both of those harboring E. coli. Mm. Best to stay away from those, or if you do use them, be sure you know the country of origin. If it's from the United States, there's been somewhat of an inspection process before those are marketed, whereas from some other countries, uh, there's a risk involved that you could infect your dog. So I'm, I'm not I'm not a fan of those. Doug, we've never been in the habit of giving our dogs rawhide because we've heard it can be particularly dangerous. What's your advice there? You know, again, rawhide uh, carries some risk because it's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to dent a, a rawhide bone with your thumbnail. You can't do it. Yeah. So we do see fractured teeth from rawhide. Uh, the other thing that we see, particularly in the smaller rawhide things that are, you know, kind of the shape of a pencil, those can be ingested very quickly. And because they're eaten and the whole thing goes down, they can cause a, an intestinal obstruction. And we do find instances where we've had to go in and surgically remove those. Mm. So I'm, I'm not a big rawhide fan. And there's a popular brand name product that everyone seems to know about called Greenies. What are they made of and are they safe? Greenies are a vegetable fiber product. And actually, you know, there was a problem with Greenies a few years ago. And, and so the manufacturer went through a process of revamping their product. And Greenies are, are really good. And there are several companies that that make greenies. There's a greenie made by one company that's impregnated with chlorhexidine, and chlorhexidine is a, a it's a chemical, but it's used as a human mouthwash. We use it cleanse a wound, and that chlorhexidine that's impregnated in those greenies is antibacterial to the mouth, so it really does help to keep the bacteria down. There's a newer product called Oravet that is like a greenie. It has those long-strand vegetable fibers, which help to scrape the plaque off the teeth, but it also has another product, again, that comes from human medicine that softens plaque and calculus so that when the dog chews that treat, it softens the calculus and then the long strand vegetable fibers that surround it help to remove that. So appropriate to treats like that can really be a benefit because even though the gold standard is brushing your dog's teeth, we all know realistically that uh, there is not every dog out there uh, is going to be amenable to that. One final question I have for you. Is it okay to let my dogs eat ice cubes once in a while? I mean, it makes one of my dogs so happy for a few seconds, but I've read that you really shouldn't do this. 
you know, it, it runs the same danger as you and I chewing on ice. You've got something very cold and very hard, and it can lead to, to tooth fractures. Now, that said, sometimes if I have a dog that's got a little bit of an upset tummy and has had a vomiting problem, I recommend putting two or three ice cubes in a bowl for a dog to lick and drink the water, and that controls the amount of water that's ingested. So I'm not totally against ice cubes, but as a regular treat, I don't recommend it because, again, the potential for tooth fracture. Veterinarian Dr. Douglas Coons, this was so informative and educational. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. It's been my pleasure. back to the show. February is National Pet Dental Health Month. So let's talk about that. Brushing your dog's teeth is a little like the way people view flossing their own teeth. You know, it's important, but you never really do it often enough. Maybe you're more disciplined than I used to be about brushing your dog's teeth, but when you had to watch your dog go through painful dental extractions, not to mention the sting of pain for those extractions, it's easier to get motivated and sustain a good oral hygiene regimen, however tedious it may be. Josie was a wonderful, sweet dog, the second dog Peter and I had together. I first spotted Josie during one of my morning runs, way back in the early days of our marriage when my knees were happy to run five to seven miles at a time. And so as I was running past a public golf course in my area, I spotted her sitting by the maintenance area. It was easy to tell that she didn't really belong there, and automatically I diverted my run toward her and struck up a conversation with one of the employees. I learned that this dog, who might have had some collie and shepherd in her, but looked mostly like a tamed wolf, had been hanging around the golf course for a few days and was being fed scraps of food by the workers. No one knew where she came from, and no one seemed to care much what would become of her, so our meeting was fortuitous, to say the least. I ran home, got in my car, drove back to the golf course, and with not much difficulty was able to coax this scraggly, long-haired, dirty dog into my car. Of course, there was no collar, and we learned later there was no microchip either, but now she was my responsibility, and by extension, Peter's. But I have to tell you, even as I was driving her home, I had a feeling that Josie might become our newest family member. That's how precious she seemed to me at the moment. She knew she could trust me. We had her evaluated the next day after spending the night quietly quarantined in our extra bedroom. Our family vet found that she had two previously broken legs and an injured snout. It was so heartbreaking and infuriating to realize that this gentle bean had been so badly abused. But there was more. The vet also determined that she had multiple abscess teeth and suggested we see a dentist, which we did a few days later. By that time, Josie had indeed become part of our family. After a good grooming, she was stately and a real beauty. 
Paco, our Doberman Shepherd mix at the time, accepted her at once, as did Peter, who was starting to realize what it's going to be like being married to a dog and cat rescuer. And this all occurred early in our marriage in its first year. Fortunately, Peter has stuck around for many subsequent animal adventures. But back to the dentist, who regrettably confirmed that many of Josie's teeth needed to come out. The procedure occurred shortly thereafter, leaving her with only about half of her teeth remaining in a sore post-operative course. But she seemed to quickly heal up, and as far as we could tell, she never really missed her teeth. Josie lived six more years with us, well into her teens. We were so grateful to have her be part of our family for so long, and what a wonderful chance to save this dog from who knows what. But Thinking back about how she must have suffered with her mouth filled with abscesses still saddens us, and even to this day, it somehow motivates us to keep up with the oral hygiene with whatever dogs we have in our family. So, most authorities recommend daily brushing, and I'm not going to restate too much of what is readily available to anyone who does a little research, but daily brushing is the main thing you can do to promote good dental hygiene. Now, concentrate on brushing the outside and the chewing surfaces, and don't really worry much about the inside surfaces as the tongue keeps those clean. And if your dog is new to this, start gently and don't try to get it all done the first time around. And you might want to start with your finger, like just put a little peanut butter or cream cheese on your finger and gently massage the teeth and gums of your dog. Make sure to use dog toothpaste. Now, this is very important. Do not use regular human toothpaste for your dog. Most human toothpastes include fluoride, which is extremely poisonous to dogs. And in addition, a lot of toothpaste contain the sweetener xylitol, which is also poisonous for your dog if ingested. You can find toothpaste formulated for dogs at Petco or PetSmart. And just keep up with it and make it part of your routine. A little treat afterwards is certainly helpful. Our dogs simply like the chicken or peanut butter toothpaste we've been using, and that seems to be reward enough to keep them coming back the next time around. Our latest pit rescue, Skye, is not too fond of the process yet, but she's coming along. One trick Peter discovered as we were introducing her to brushing would be to wait until we came back from a long walk or after a tiring session of ball fetching. Skye's much more inclined to sit still for the procedure while recovering or resting after a decent amount of exercise. And of course, as you know, early intervention for your dog, should he or she show any signs of mouth problems or disease, is really important for so many reasons. And things you would look for might include yellow or brown tartar that forms a crest along the gum line, teeth that appear to be misaligned, missing teeth or chipped teeth or loose teeth, your dog stops eating or stops chewing on favorite toys, bleeding gums or red inflamed gums, any unusual appearance to the mouth such as growths or bumps, compulsive nose licking or excessive drooling, and finally, if your dog develops bad breath. Now, a lot of people think it's normal for dogs to have bad breath. Not true. I mean, it might not smell like a bed of roses, but a foul smell coming from your dog's mouth might signify serious health risk with the potential to damage not only your pet's teeth and gums, but its internal organs as well. So if any of these problems are observed, a trip to the vet is definitely warranted. When it comes to keeping our dogs healthy, many owners overlook the importance of oral hygiene. 
According to the American Veterinary Dental Society, 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. Keeping on top of your pet's dental health has lasting positive effects. Some studies suggest that maintaining oral health can add up to five years to your pet's life. So February is National Pet Dental Health Month. So now is the perfect time to call your veterinarian and schedule a dental checkup for your furry family members and try to begin the routine of brushing your dog's teeth two to three times per week. Don't go away. More great stuff right here on Animals Today. Listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today, and I am very excited to welcome Stacy Coleman and Brad Croft, who are putting rescued pit bulls to work. Stacy is executive director of Animal Farm Foundation, and Brad heads up Universal Canine. Welcome to you both. Thank you Thank for you. having me. Stacy, describe the genesis of this program and how the relationship between Animal Farm Foundation and Universal Canine came about. Uh, it's really it's a it's a pretty interesting story and a story of um, how important it is to network and and make sure everybody knows your interests and what you're doing as your organization. So years ago, Animal Farm Foundation had tried to launch uh, a detection dog or a canine program, a police dogs program, and it just didn't really gain any traction. Um, there were a couple of different things that that weren't quite right with the program, including the timing. And so we we tabled that program for a while, and then about eight years later, a friend of mine who works in Austin at Austin Pets Alive called me and he said, "You know what? There's this guy I know in San Antonio who trains detection dogs and." 
I think you need to know him. And I said, well, of course, I'm always glad to meet new people. And and uh, Mike introduced me to Brad, and I learned what Brad was doing and how Brad went about what he was doing and, and what his purpose is for why he, he trains shelter dogs to do uh, canine detection work. And it was it was the, the perfect match for the programs. Uh, we were very lucky to be able to connect with Brad. One of the things that's so important to us as a humane organization is working with other organizations that adhere to our humane standards of training. And that's what Brad does. So uh, Brad has a, a, a way of, of training the dogs that where he uses um, food or lures or reward-based training, uh, which is right up our alley. We're not into aversives. So uh, it, was, it was a great match. Our, my friend there at Austin Pets Alive did just the right thing. Okay, so Brad, uh, describe where the dogs come from, and uh, maybe you can uh, give us a starter lesson on what qualities make for a potentially good detection dog or a tracking dog. Sure. So, you know, um, the dogs come from shelters all around the United States. We have people that, that we've networked with, including Animal Farm, um, that send us dogs as far as away from New York, as far as Hawaii, wow. um, and, you know, I've, I've actually even gotten some dogs from Florida, believe it or not. Um, so, I mean, we, we have shelters that, that seek us out and find potential dogs, um, and, and, and the dogs that we look for are really the dogs that um, are the ones that get looked over in the adoption events because they either have too much energy or um, you know they just uh, they just don't do well in those adoption events, and they're they're basically the long stays. Mm. Or um, in kill shelters, these are the dogs that get put down first, and those dogs are the dogs that usually work really really well for our program. So, what are the typical costs to train a dog and a handler, and uh, what are the ongoing costs, if there are any? Normally, a dog that um, goes through our program, the cost for that dog is anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand uh, dollars, depending on what the dog's trained for. Hmm. The cost could go as high as twenty thousand. Sometimes, Animal Farm and us, we we get together and we train dogs for dual purpose detection and tracking right and a dog like that is a, is a very expensive dog mm. because there's a lot of time that goes into to training that dog um so um yeah we you know we we train the dogs for either narcotics or explosives and then in some uh cases uh you know the dual purpose the tracking as well so, Stacy, Animal Farm Foundation provides us some or all of the funding for this process? We do. So now Brad trains um, dogs from all different kinds of um, shelters and rescues and uh, dogs that have uh, maybe been looked over by some of the, the organizations that train the purebred and purpose-bred dogs. But all of Brad's dogs, they don't all necessarily fall under the label pit bull. He's got dogs that look like all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But what we do with Animal Farm is we fund uh, particular spaces, a certain number of dogs in each of his classes, where the dogs have been labeled pit bull are um, assigned to a handler and learn the task. So we fund just the pit bull part of it, but the dogs are in the class with um, all kinds of other dogs from other situations as well. 
You know, this this reminds me a little bit of uh, Wallace the Pitbull. You probably know about Wallace, the dog that belonged to Rue Yori, who became a champion with the flying disc. Because it shows right. uh, the doubters and those who are harboring fears, fears and prejudices about who these dogs really are and what they can be. Exactly. And I actually, I know Wall, I knew Wallace when Wallace was still alive. And it's that kind of um, drive and work ethic that Wallace has that the dogs that we train um, for and include in this program that Brad trains for us, um, that's, it's the same kind of drive and, and desire to work that Wallace had that makes these dogs that do detection work uh, successful as well. So these are dogs that, that don't necessarily feel satisfied laying on the couch or um, going for just a jog with their owner and now they're set for the rest of the day. These are dogs that want to get up and do something. They want to be using their brain. They want to be looking for something. They want to be playing with the ball or, or a toy. Those are the dogs that do this kind of work. So in, like um, Brad was saying, in a shelter situation, those are the dogs that tend to get overlooked by those who are looking for pet dog families. So in the shelter, you know, there are dogs labeled pit bull from one um, extreme to the other. There's the kind that just don't ever even really want to get off the couch. And then there's those dogs like Wallace, like the dogs in our program, that love to work. And those are the dogs that thrive in this program. Brad, if a dog gets trained, say, to detect narcotics, does that include the range of illegal drugs, or is it best to stick to a class of drugs like opioids or marijuana or others? As you know, the the uh, laws are changing kind of back and forth right now, but, I, um, you know, at least on marijuana. Um, so, you know, for right now, um, we don't train dogs on marijuana mm-hmm. to start. Um, the only time that we train the dog on marijuana is when we get the specific request to do so now um, because, you know, it's just it's, it's becoming legal in so many states that um, I think at some point it's probably going to be off the list. So, um, yeah, we stick to more of the harder drugs, the cocaine, the opioids, the, the heroin, the ecstasy, the... Um, the the meth um, and 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 uh, also we uh, uh, some of the stuff that we do we also train them on um, LSD oh. as well yeah. but there's but there's not a lot of that out there anymore so I mean at least that I know of <laughs> or the police are telling me you know and Brad are the breeds that are traditionally used as detection dogs in the United States how do the uh, pit bulls compare to the to the gold standard detection breeds. I'll tell you what, the ones that we find are better. Oh wow! So, I, and there's no comparison. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I, we've trained every breed dog there is, and I have I have seen no better than some of these pit bulls that come through here. And and in the last ten classes, the top dog of those classes, and out of every breed dog that you can imagine, and including. You know, some kind of mixed breeds that we don't even know what they are. The pit bulls are the ones that look like pit bulls, at least. Yeah. Um, have the traditional blocky head, muscled up looking dogs. Man, they are just excelling at this work. Fabulous. Stacy, what are you doing to increase the size of this operation, of this relationship with Universal Canine? 
Well, it's it's funny. We had just had a, a meeting about that this morning with everybody at Animal Farm who works um, as part of this program, talking about how we want to grow the program and do we want to grow the program. We already have, I think we're, we're up to close to 50 dogs now that have come through in just a, a, the couple of years that we've worked with Brad. So Brad does an amazing job at getting dogs through the program and placed with uh, police departments and school districts all over the country. So to grow the program, I don't know that we uh, need to work on that because the the reputation of Brad's work, uh, the proof that, you know, the, the news stories that you see about the, the amazing drug finds that these dogs have, that sort of promotes the program right there. What we're interested in doing, though, is maybe targeting some of the communities where there still is discrimination and and using the dogs from this program to help battle the discrimination like breed specific legislation that still exists so uh brad and i were at a were we i think it was a conference we were at uh oh no we were at an, a media event in colorado um last year in 2017 and we we did a tour of some of the shelters there to identify a dog near denver that would fit the program. And I think, Brad, that dog came from, was it Littleton, Colorado? Littleton, yes. Yeah, so uh, we took that dog out of out of Littleton. The dog went to go stay with Brad, went through the training, and was placed back into a police department there just outside of Denver. And that's kind of the purpose of this program. That's one of the reasons we work together on this program, because Brad is committed, uh, just as we are, to fighting that discrimination. So I think an answer to your question, a long-winded way to get around to what you asked me, I think more than anything, we'd like to target some of the communities where the discrimination still exists and grow the program there. So we've been speaking with Brad Croft and Stacey Coleman. Brad, how can people learn more about Universal Canine? So they can either find us on Facebook at Universal K number nine all together, or they can go on, you know, our website, which is Universal K9, and it's K number nine, I-N-C for incorporated.com. And when people go there, they will see... uh they will see a selection of wonderful short videos of the dogs in action. It's really great. And uh, Stacy, how can people reach you at Animal Farm Foundation? You can also find us on Facebook at Animal Farm Foundation, or you can find us on our website, which is animalfarmfoundation.org. Well, I want to thank you both. What a wonderful collaborative effort. Thanks again. Thanks for thank having you, Peter. Is that great or what? More with animals today after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the Danube Delta. One of the most biodiverse places on Earth is Romania's Danube Delta. Home to more than 5,000 plant and animal species, only the Great Barrier Reef can boast more. This ever-changing delta, where the Danube meets the Black Sea, has 30 distinct ecosystems, including marshes, grasslands, reed beds, wetlands, and a forest. After the fall of communism, agricultural areas were allowed to be flooded again, and its prior natural state has largely returned. The Delta is one of the world's top destinations for bird watching, and visitors can view a variety of species, including herons, egrets, and kingfishes. Other notable birds found there are bee-eaters, the very colorful European roller, 
and the hard-to-spot Ictrin warbler. In fact, more than 300 bird species call the delta home or pass through it. In the summer, great white pelicans congregate and red-breasted geese are there in winter. The delta is simply a delight for wildlife photographers. When you visit, it's best to take a multi-day tour with an established eco-friendly tour company. The delta is sparsely populated by people and there is very little infrastructure like running water. Another rare feature of the Danube Delta is the oak forest, home to wild horses, turtles, and snakes. But, at least for now, tourists are not permitted in this pristine zone. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter, I know we spoke about the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites in the world. What do you think are some of the most poisonous animals in the world? Mm. Do you want me to guess? Yeah. Oh, uh, spider, scorpion. Um... What kind of spider? What kind of scorpion? <laughs> yeah, I okay. hear you. Okay, well, this is from... Snake? Yep. But okay. what kind of snake? Okay, this is from Exploridia.com, the 10 most poisonous animals in the world. Number 10, the Sydney Tunnel Spider is the deadliest spider in Australia. The spider lives in bushes or can be found in pools located in New South Wales. With one single bite, the spider can kill a human in just an hour. Ouch. There are 13 documented deaths in Australia from the Sydney Tunnel spider. The spider can claw through fingernails with its fangs. Ugh. <laughs> the bite can be very powerful and can cause muscle spasms and convulsions. The bite can be treated with an antivenom. Number nine on the list, beaked sea snake. Hmm. Its venom can paralyze and cause muscle damage. Its venom can also cause death with just one bite within six hours. The beaked sea snake is usually found in Asia and Australia. The bite can be treated with antivenom. Number eight in the list of the top 10 most poisonous animals in the world the Komodo dragon. Oh, yeah. You know about this animal? Have you heard of Adam? Oh, sure. Do you know what he looks like? He looks like a prehistoric uh, lizard. That's right, Peter. It is a giant lizard, and it's measured to be about three meters long or 10 feet. And the Komodo dragon is found in Indonesia. Another place I guess I'll never go. That's right. Number seven on the list, death stalker scorpion. Wow. Now, if you see a picture of this, Peter... I swear it looks like some of the scorpions we see here in really? Palm Springs. Wow. They're these big... Claws. Pincers. Right. That just look like it could grab your toe and smoosh it into pieces. <laughs> and the tail. And the tail that's Ready curved to... up. Right. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, this dangerous scorpion can be found in North Africa and the Middle East. So I guess it's not here in Palm Springs. Their sting can cause fever, convulsions, coma, and death. Stalker scorpion sting is extremely painful, but it's not able to kill a healthy adult human. Number six on the list of the top most poisonous animals in the world, the poison dart frog. A frog? Yeah. Whoa. And if you see a picture of these things, yeah. they're beautiful. They're very colorful. They're only like two inches long. Hmm. They're pretty little frogs, but they are poisonous. 
They have venom that could kill 10 adults with only small amount of venom that could fit on a tip of a pin. Shay. They live in the rainforest of Central and South America. The poison lies on their vibrant skin and is capable of killing a large mammal. This frog is said to be one of the most dangerous animals wow. in the so world. So no touch. No touch. Gee. Yeah. Another place I'm not going. And have you heard of the box jellyfish? No. Lies five on our list. The box jellyfish is one of the most poisonous animals in the world. The sting of this jellyfish is so excruciating that people go into shock and die before they hit the shore. Gee. 5,567 people have died since 1954 from this deadly jellyfish. The box jellyfish can be found in Asia, Australia, and is commonly found in Hawaii. Oh. Are you going to go to Hawaii again? Go in the ocean? I'm going to stay on the ship. Okay. Number four on the list, the inland taipan. Hmm. Is this another lizard? Snake. Snake. Oh, yeah. The snake. most venomous snake. And it's found in Australia. Again, Australia. Hmm. Hmm. It can kill up to 100 humans or 250,000 mice with its lethal venom in just 45 minutes. Gee. Its venom is more dangerous than any cobra by 200 to 400 times. However, the snake is not commonly seen and has no record of human deaths. The bite of an inland taipan can be treated with anti-venom. Number three, Brazilian wandering spider. This is the most venomous spider in the world and has a reputation for killing many humans. The spider can hide inside shoes, clothing, cars, or areas in the house. Oh, my goodness. So if I'm in Brazil, I'm going to... Stay in the hotel. Shake out my shoes and my clothes. Oh. And the Brazilian wandering spider can cause immense pain and lead to a painful death. Number two on the list is the pufferfish. Yeah. The victims of a pufferfish die within four to 24 hours. Yeah. This is an animal, Peter, with no cure for its poison. They're a delicacy, aren't they? They People, are. Yeah. The Japanese and Koreans admire it for its meat. They remove the skin and internal organs due to those being the source of poison. But still, why would you want to eat a puffer fish? I know. But sometimes the cleaning is not complete, I guess, exactly. or they throw the wrong part in I your know. meal. Yeah. The number one poisonous animal in the world. Mm -hmm. Blue-ringed octopus. The blue-ringed octopus, Peter, is the size of a golf ball and could fit in your hand. But it has enough venom to kill 26 adults within minutes. It is the most dangerous animal on Earth. As neurotoxins enter a body, muscles begin to weaken and get numb. This leads to a horrible death. The blue-ringed octopus can be found in the tide pools of the Pacific Ocean from Japan to Australia. Well, thanks for that, Lori. I think I will get my bubble, my environmental bubble suit repaired so I can uh, put it on before I leave the house. Does that mean you're never going to travel with me to Australia or Asia? I'll just have to make some wise decisions. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. It's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.